This message is provided by Bridgeway Community Church. Thanks for tuning in. Well, good morning, Bridgeway. It's great to see you here today. I got to brag on that guy for just a second. I don't know if you realize it, but Justin, Pastor Justin, and our youth group just got back from Gatlinburg, Tennessee, just yesterday, last night. He said it was an early night. They got back at 7 p.m., that's late for me, mind you. So they just got back. They were doing uh, work all week building trusses for this community center. And I got to tell you, I am just so grateful to, uh, to see our students back and to see Justin back. Can you guys put your hands together and just thank God for an awesome, awesome mission trip. Uh, so good to have them back. And so good to play cornhole this afternoon. Hot dogs at 10 a.m. I would have never guessed that, but hopefully you enjoy that as well. It's good to see you here today. It's good to be joined by those of you who are online with us. If you were here last week, I kicked off this series, Words to Live By. I've been thinking a lot about words these days. And I've been thinking about how we have such this, this incredible way in which we can have an impact on people. And for most people, the way they're going to experience who you are is probably first and foremost through the words that you choose to use when you're around others. Our words are so powerful. I just can't get this out of my head, how, how incredible our words can be. I mean, in fact, we have words that we can use in ways that, that build other people up. And then at the same time, we can use words that tear them down. We can be the type of people that live our lives with, with words of encouragement. Or we can always be looking for that, that edge, that way to kind of have a critique over someone else. Our words are incredibly powerful. So each week, we're taking just one word. That's my hope, is that we would just take one word a week, and we would learn this word, and we would actually be vulnerable enough to not only say these words, but to actually try to live them out in our lives. And so last week, a little audience participation needed for this part. We looked at one word. Anyone remember the word we looked at last week? You can just like shout it out. You're in church. What was the word we learned last week? Help. Help. I love it. And it's not only a word, it's a prayer. And I was kind of hoping all week that you would say that little word and that would be kind of your little prayer. Like, like Lord, help me. God, help me. God, be with me. God, be a help for someone I know in need. It's not only a prayer, it's really a pathway to surrendering and saying, you know what, I, I need you, God, and I'm waving the white flag and I'm, I'm going to move in the direction that you've called me to. This week, again, just one word. And my promise for you in this series is that if you learn to be vulnerable with this word that, just as I said last week, it has the incredible potential to change everything around you. In fact, this one little word, my promise to you, is if you learn it and you live it, it will definitely impact your life. Your life will be richer and your relationships will be stronger and your faith will be much deeper and especially because of this word. But I'm going to hold you in suspense for just a moment. Before I give you the word, I'm actually going to give you an image, a picture to think about. Now, a little side story. Um, my youngest son has been on my case. He's been saying, Dad, you need more pictures in your sermons. And I'm like, son, seriously. I mean, this whole idea of this series is this series is about words to live by. It's not about pictures to live by. This isn't like insta-sermon. And I realize that I'm not really raising a 15-year-old. I'm raising like a young attorney. Does anyone else have that in their home? Like, he's really good at arguing his point. And so... This is for my son. This is a picture. And the reason I wanted to show you this picture is this image is known as the head of Christ. And this is a very famous painting. In fact, um, it is the most reproduced image 
of Jesus, uh, about half a billion, 500 million reproductions of this image. It's found in churches, seminaries, hospitals. There are organizations that have commissioned this painting, uh, organizations like the Salvation Army, USO, YMCA. Get this. There was a point in time where the U.S. government actually reproduced this in a wallet-sized format and gave it to soldiers as they were being deployed in World War II. Can you imagine that? Government printing pictures of the head of Christ and giving them to all of our soldiers. Uh, Man, crazy stuff. This is a picture that was painted by uh, the artist known as Warner Salman, and he painted this in 1924. The way he tells it, he had this crazy visit by God in the middle of the night, 2 a.m. to be exact, and God told him to paint this picture of Jesus. And since then, it's been venerated, which means it's got like this this belief that it actually has healing properties. In fact, um, as recent as 1991, there was a young boy, I think his age was about 10 or 11, and his name was Isaac Ayab. He had uh, cancer. And after setting sights on this image, a certified doctor said that the leukemia had left his body. Pretty crazy. Um, Another crazy story about this picture is it turned up in Chicago. Apparently, there was about five or six original paintings, and two of them turned up in a thrift store. Any a thrift store, any thrift store shoppers, uh, somebody bought this painting, two of them, for like seven bucks each. Knew what they were valued at, turned around and sold the paintings each for $135,000. Is that crazy or what? It's an amazing painting. But my question to you this morning is I want you to look at this and I want to ask you, is this, is this the real Jesus? Like, is this what Jesus really looked like. I, I don't know. I look at the picture, and it's not entirely a man of Middle Eastern descent. I mean, he's got the jawline as such. It's certainly better than a lot of paintings I've seen. It's not what I would call the surfer Jesus, right? You know the surfer Jesus, right? He's got the blonde hair and the blue eyes, and usually a golden sash right across, and he floats everywhere in the paintings. This is certainly much better than that, but I, I look at the demeanor of Jesus, and Is this what Jesus really looked like? He seems so calm, so in control. Is this the real Jesus, calm and cool, meek and mild? I want you to see an image of Jesus this morning in the Scriptures. In fact, if you have your Bible, I'd love for you to turn to John chapter 2. It's In fact, it's the story just after what we read last week. And so if you want to turn back to John chapter 2, We're going to kind of continue the story, and it's actually not two stories, it's one story. It's what Jesus did just before this that I think has incredible power about what Jesus is going to do in the story today. Now, if you were here last week, we looked at this very first sign, this very first miracle of Jesus. He shows up at a wedding party in Cana of Galilee, and and his mom asks for a favor. They've run out of wine, and so Jesus turns the water into wine. About 180 gallons of water turned into wine. And that happens just before what we're about to read. And John, the writer here of this gospel, has a very clear point he's trying to make. In fact, his entire book is organized around these miracles. And so he calls them signs. But the first sign is this turning the water into wine. And then you read through the book of John, as I've been doing this week, and And he keeps leaving you these miracles, these breadcrumbs, all the way until the end of the book where 
he gives you the seventh sign, which is the resurrection of Jesus, to lead you in this undeniable truth that Jesus is Lord. But before he gets there, he needs to show you something about Jesus and, I think, the real Jesus that's available to us. I I want you to, to watch in this story for the one word that Jesus is going to teach us, starting in John chapter 2, beginning in verse 13. It says, When it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple courts, he found people selling cattle, sheep, and doves, and others sitting at tables exchanging money. So he made a whip out of cords and drove all from the temple courts, both sheep and cattle. He scattered the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. To those who sold doves, he said, get these out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a market. His disciples remembered that it is written, zeal for your house will consume me. The Jews then responded to him, what sign can you show us to prove your authority to do all this? Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days. They replied, it has taken 46 years to build this temple and you are going to raise it in three days? But the temple he had spoken of was his body. And he was raised from the dead and his disciples recalled what he had said. And they believed the scripture and the words that Jesus had spoken. I love how that ends. And they believed the words that Jesus had spoken. I actually think in this story, they didn't just remember and recall the words of Jesus. I think they clearly remembered the actions of Jesus. I mean, this is crazy. Jesus is overturning tables, and he's using a whip to drive out animals. Who, who is this Jesus? What happened to the Jesus, meek and mild, the Jesus, you know, the Calgon take me away moment kind of Jesus. This is not the lion, this is not the lamb, this is the lion Jesus, right? I mean, this is warrior mode Jesus. And I think the word that Jesus teaches us in this story, he doesn't even say it in any of the dialogue, but he clearly demonstrates it with the way he's living. And I think the word that he's trying to teach us this morning is the word enough. I mean, very clearly, Jesus has gotten to a point where enough, no more of this behavior in the temple, no more. And he never uses the word, but his actions are clear. And I want you to know this morning that this is the real Jesus. And I believe that there are are times in not only the life of Jesus, but there are times in the lives of his followers when we need to use this same word, enough, no more. I've had it. And use it appropriately and in the same way in which we see Jesus using it here. So the way I want to kind of teach you this morning is I want to start, I want to start with what the people experienced. I kind of want to start in the middle of the story. It'd be more my nature to kind of give you the background and the history, but I want to start with what the people experienced because they experienced a very different Jesus, didn't they? I mean, this is crazy, right? Like, this is a very different account of who Jesus is. And, and you can tell this is different because the very people watching this happen can't believe their eyes. In fact, in verse 18, it says, it says these words. It says, what sign can you, do, can you show us to prove that you have the right to do this? It's kind of interesting. Jesus just gave them a sign, right? He just came from a wedding, and there'd be no mistaking that word would have got around, right? I mean, the guy changed water into wine, 
to the tune of 180 gallons. That word would have gotten out. And he just gave them a sign. He just gave them a miracle. And yet they ask again, what sign do you have to prove that you have the right to do this? And John is, of course, all throughout this book, he's so obsessed with these signs, with these miracles. They're demanding for this sign. And it's so strange. We go from We go from the wedding where Jesus is this great party maker, right? And now we're in the cleansing of the temple and Jesus is this great party pooper, isn't he? I mean, Jesus is all secret and hidden and mysterious. And now Jesus is on full display, so dramatic. He's so bold. He's so powerful. And I got to just ask you this morning, when you see these two different sides, which part of Jesus are you drawn to? I mean, this is the real Jesus. Maybe you see this story and you think, no, 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 I, I, like, the, I like the wedding Jesus. I like the party Jesus. I like the happy-go-lucky version. And, and this version's a little, a little unsettling, a little terrifying, a little strange. How do I get my mind around this? And you're asking the same question that they were asking. What gives you the right to do this? And this clearly demonstrates, theologically, what I would want you to know is that Jesus has authority over all. That when they ask him, what right do you have? Jesus is saying, I've got the right. I've got authority over all. And you have to put these two stories together to see that. That Jesus isn't just over the temple. He's not just over a religious system. Jesus is over all systems. Just before this, Jesus was at a wedding. Jesus is over all weddings. He's over all temples. He's over all institutions. He's over this corrupt system, which I'll tell you a little bit more about in a moment, about these money changers, meaning that Jesus is over all of Wall Street. He's over and in control of the animal kingdom. I mean, this whip driving these animals out. He's over any area of corruption in our world today. And the interesting part and the intersection for you and I is Jesus, if he has authority over all, means that he has authority over all of our life. And I think this is hard maybe for people to recognize because when Jesus comes into your life, you, you want the wedding Jesus. You want to have your cup filled. You want to have your life filled with this abundance, and he'll do that. But this same real Jesus is also not afraid to turn some things over in your life and to turn the tables of ideas and constructs and ideals in your mind, to to flip them completely upside down. Last week, you got the miracle, right? You got the water into wine. And I, I think this week, you get the muscle of Jesus. And maybe it's just time as a church to kind of understand that this is the way in which Jesus really truly works, and it's how he's to work in our life. You know, I, I have people say to, to me sometimes, oh, you know, I, I, I'm a Christian, and I, I, I'm all for that. In fact, don't mishear me. In fact, I, I want everyone to become a follower of Christ. But I really wish that people would kind of wrestle with what that means. Like to really understand, what does it mean if Jesus is the Lord of your life? That means he's Lord and has authority over all of your life over every area. And that means that sometimes you're going to walk in the miracles. And sometimes you're also going to have to face the muscle of Jesus. 
the confrontation of Jesus. Jesus coming in and saying, I need to flip some things around, flip some things over in your life. And I'll be very clear that this is not only the authority of Jesus, this is what you want. Um, without this, without the muscle of Jesus, you really truly have nothing to put your faith in. I mean, think about it. If, if all you had was miracle man, if all you had was Jesus that turned water into wine and did one blessing and miracle in your life after the other, what, what would you really have? I mean, you would have kind of the genie in the bottle kind of feel, right? You, you would maybe have, I was thinking this week, um, you, you would kind of have like the, the person who wins the lottery. You know how those stories go, right? They're all the same. Somebody is in rags and they win the lottery and then they're in riches. And then what happens two years later? They're back to rags. Because there's no real change in their life. They've experienced a, a miracle per se, but they've never been changed. And the Bible's really clear about our lives going on this journey with Jesus and being transformed. Love that verse from Romans 12. Be transformed. The word there is metamorphi. It's the caterpillar to a butterfly. It's the complete change of who you are. So let's just pause here. It's only halfway through the message. Let's just pause for a moment and just kind of get our heads and our thoughts around us. Does Jesus ha have all authority over your life? Are there any areas that you're holding back? Are there any actions or thoughts that you've not allowed Jesus to have the full reign and the full authority over you? Because here's the thing, Jesus wants to come and to, to turn these things over so that you can become more like him. And that means that you must work with Jesus. You must be in line with him. It's kind of this crazy thought that we really have some freedom in who we are. We can actually choose to, to be on board with this Jesus that wants to completely transform everything about us in our world. And that means he's going to have to move beyond just comforting you to actually challenging you. I had a friend in the church, and he, he moved away, and it was kind of one of those relationships where we had been friends for, I don't know, maybe 15 years, and we could just kind of say anything to each other and, you know, kind of get away with it. And this one friend of mine had this way in which he would say, Pastor, you know, what do people never tell you? And I jokingly once said, one time I said to him, I said, you know, nobody ever calls me up. I think I was having a bad week. I, I said, I think no one ever calls me up and says, you know what, Pastor? I'm doing great. I'm reading my Bible every day. I'm serving. Uh, I love my wife with all of my heart. And, and you know what? I'm giving 20% to the church. And I just kind of made that up on the spot. And this friend of mine, then every time I would talk to him, or every time he would call me, he would say, hey, pastor, I just want you to know, uh, I'm reading my Bible every day, and I'm praying every day, and I'm loving my wife and my kids but I haven't really come to grips with giving the church 20% of my money. And he would just kind of laugh, and I would kind of laugh, and it was sort of our joke. And, and yet in that is kind of this truth that we have this freedom to do what we want. In fact, maybe another way to think about this from a, a way in which our faith works is we have this freedom. We have this free will and not this determinism way of living our life. We actually at Bridgeway believe that you have freedom in what you choose to do, that it's not all predetermined and all predestined and pre-mapped out for you. There's actually a way of faith that you have to walk into it and freely do what God calls you to. And we each have these options every single day. In fact, uh, I've just tried even this past week to be more aware of my own freedom to obey or to 
not obey God in my life. I'll give you just one example. I won't give you the most transparent, but I'll give you one. I was driving uh, down Northland Drive, and I was coming up on 10 Mile. You know that intersection. You got the school, you got Rockford Middle School, and gas station, and McDonald's, and and I was coming up on that intersection. I could tell something was wrong because there were all these cars in the U-turn backed up, and I noticed there was one car that was sort of stalled, and one person, a woman, behind it trying to push this vehicle down the road. And I could see a very small figure behind the wheel, like a child, steering this vehicle. And then a line of cars behind it watching this event occur. And I'm like, this is crazy. And I'm coming up on this U-turn, and cars are passing, and honk, honk, honk. You know, it's kind of this chaotic scene. And, and yet she keeps pushing this car, and now I realize I'm coming up behind her, and she's trying to, like, not only go off the road, but go around the corner of 10 Mile, and then, I believe, up into the parking lot at McDonald's, all by herself. And honk, 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 cars are pulling around her, and I'm, I got my dog with me. I, I didn't share that part, but my dog is sitting on my lap, and uh, if you haven't met my dog, he has a bit of an emotional attachment to me, meaning whenever I leave him, he starts barking, and so I'm driving, and I'm wondering, like, I got to do something for this lady. And so I just put the car in park, I hit the hazards, and I leave Luca in the car running. And I get out of the car and I put my hands on the back of this van and once I do, it seemed like the whole wor world kind of like coincided and it was like me and six other people and we're all just very easily now pushing this van and the lady's like, oh, thank you so much. My seven-year-old son is in the front seat <laughs> steering and I'm like, I know, I saw him up there and, and we easily pushed this car into McDonald's parking lot and you know, all of a sudden there's this high-fiving and, you know, just celebration. And then at the same time, there's this strange reality that I left my car in the middle of 10 Mile <laughs> running. And I look back and my dog is like holding onto the steering wheel, barking at me and at all the cars that are passing him by. And I quick ran back to my car. There was no time for celebration. I just all this week couldn't get out of my head because some cars went by and they didn't know why the dog was driving my vehicle and so they were clearly confused. But there was an opportunity there for many more people to get out of the passenger seat and behind the van to push and to help. And I, I like I said last week, I, I get it wrong far more than I get it right. But we have these opportunities to step into freedom and to experience the movement and the presence of God. But let me answer one question that I, I think everyone maybe wonders about, which is, why this? Here's another image. Why, why this Jesus with a whip? Why does Jesus take this opportunity to, to kind of form a whip? I mean, the whole thing is just strange to me. It says that he sees this happening in the temple, and he takes a moment. And it says in verse 7, 15 that he made a whip out of cords. Now, I'll just tell you, if you put me on a ranch and you give me access to YouTube, I still couldn't figure out how to, like, braid a whip together. But I wonder how Jesus was thinking in that moment. Oh, man, I, gotta, I have to stop this. Enough. And it's such a strange image of Jesus. It's such a different reality to that first picture we looked at. And some of you might think, Ron, this is wrong. Like, this whip, it, it kind of provokes violence, and I mean, don't we have enough violence? Don't we have enough abuse in our world? Why, why this image of Jesus? Now, let me be really clear. He, 
would have been using the whip not to drive out the people, but to drive out the animals. Jesus is very clear in other teaching to not harm another person. He would say, if you're slapped, to turn the other cheek. And so Jesus is not using violence and abuse and force against other people. He's just getting the animals out of the temple. And this is during the Passover season, which would have been a very dramatic scene to begin with. In fact, Passover was the one time of the year where everyone came to Jerusalem. Jerusalem was a little town, maybe 100,000 people. Scholars would say that during Passover, that town would swell to about two to three million people. And they would have all come to the temple, and they would have been required at the temple to pay a temple tax. And that temple tax was a strange denomination. It was half a shekel. Not a shekel, a half a shekel. And it had to be a particular type of coin. Church was very, very deliberate on this. And so in the church, in the temple, you had these money changers. And think about it. You're traveling from all over the world to come to Jerusalem, and you might not have a half shekel. You might only have whole shekels. You might have Greek denomination. You might have Egyptian money. You might not have any money. You might just have like a bushel of wheat. And oh boy, those money changers were so glad to give you the right half shekel for a price. Uh, you think Visa is bad. They would charge somewhere between 20 to 30% to convert your money into the right denomination, half a shekel. And then on top of that, you not only paid your temple tax, but you had to make a sacrifice. And the sacrifice would be an animal, a sheep or a goat or a bull. And think about that. You're traveling to Jerusalem. It was far easier to buy an animal there than to travel from your hometown with it. And people, farmers, were very glad to sell you an animal. Again, at a price. About 20 to 30% more than what you would get on the open market. And so there you have moneylenders. And you have these farmers selling cattle and sheep and doves. And they're all selling and doing their work way above market level. Translation, people were getting rich off the religious system of the church. And this is why Jesus says, enough. I think this teaches us this morning that when we think about the church, we need to remember that Jesus loves the church. That Jesus loves this assembly that we're a part of. And this assembly is never meant to be a product it's meant to be about a people. And that's why Jesus says in verse 16, stop turning my father's house into a market. In fact, he quotes this verse from Psalm 69, zeal for your house will consume me. Jesus has this zeal. When you look at that word, it means this jealousy. What are you jealous about? What do you want more than anything else? I know some people that are really zealous, right? I mean, you know anyone who's into like fantasy football? Oh, man, are they zealous, right? They're, they're zealous for draft day and every Sunday. Or maybe that's not your thing. Maybe you're, maybe you're zealous over, you know, like things you could buy on, on Amazon Prime or whatever. And we all have our zealous moments. And when we look at Jesus, his zeal, his jealousy is for the church. Luke captures it really well. He, he says in his telling of the story that my house will be a house of prayer. That the place that my people are gathered it be a place in which people are looking and seeking and coming together to seek a Savior. The church isn't a building, it's, it's a body, and we are his body. And that's why Jesus says, destroy this temple, and I will raise it up in three days. Jesus is telling you that the resurrection changes everything. I wanted to think just really about one question to leave you with today, and it's really a question of where you decide to say enough 
in your life. And so I'm going to invite the worship team to come up, and they're going to lead us in a time of just reflecting on this one word, enough. And I want to leave you with the question and really ask you, where in your life do you need to declare enough? Just maybe in a real clear moment, just between you and God, where you just say, you know what, this is where I draw the line. And there are things in your life that maybe you've just allowed to take the place of seeking a Savior. Maybe you've allowed a system of religiosity to rule you instead of seeking the Savior. Maybe what you've allowed into your life is so much consumerism or so much of a habit or so much of a bad habit that today you just simply declare enough. Maybe it's in a relationship. Maybe you've got a relationship in your life right now and it's just, it's not going well and the relationship is kind of out in the cold and this morning God is reminding you, enough. Say you're sorry, reconcile your differences, but just declare enough. Maybe there are systems in place around you, systems in your workplace or in your family and they just don't honor God and and you know it and you just this morning, you just say, you know what, I declare enough enough. Are you looking for a savior this morning, someone to come alongside and someone to not only comfort you, but to challenge you? That's Jesus. I want to invite you to think about that. And as we do, just simply to bow our heads. And I want to pray for us as a church and just lift our time up to God. God, I want to declare here in this place in Bridgeway that we want the real Jesus. We want the Jesus who is King and is Lord. And as a church, I just simply want to challenge. I want to raise the same awareness that Jesus raises, that there are times and there are places where we just need to say enough. And so God, would you help us to do that in our life? Would you help us to declare the Alpha and the Omega, the Lion and the Lamb over our lives and over the ways in which we've just allowed the world to seep in? If there's a a pattern of sin or addiction or a habit, God, I pray that we would have the boldness to say, enough. There are systems and powers around us. I pray that we would do what we could to say, enough, and to invite you to be all that we need. God, we love you, and we thank you for sending your son, whose temple was destroyed. He was torn down. He was beaten and spit upon. That there is no such thing, God, as cheap grace. It cost your son greatly. And so we thank you, Jesus. We sing to you now and we give you our time of worship. It's in your name we pray. And everyone said, amen. Thanks for listening to our podcast today. Check out our app or website at bridgewaycommunity.org for more messages or to take the sermon one step deeper by downloading the Sermon Discussion Guide.